Welcome to the New Books Network. This is the Nordic Asia Podcast. Welcome to the Nordic Asia Podcast, a collaboration sharing expertise on Asia across the Nordic region. I'm Duncan McCargo, Director of the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies and a Professor of Political Science at the University of Copenhagen. I'm delighted to be joined today by my colleague Christian Lund, the author of Nine-Tenths of the Law, Enduring Dispossession in Indonesia, Yale University Press, 2021. Christian, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you very much, Duncan. Christian Lund is a professor in the Department of Food and Resource Economics at the University of Copenhagen, and his previous books include Local Politics and the Dynamics of Property in Africa, which is a Cambridge 2008 book. He's recently finished directing an ERC advance grant project called Rule and Rupture, which is, as I understand it, about how political authority is actually exercised in various parts of the world, as opposed to how it's supposed to be exercised. So Christian, before this book, I know a lot of your writings had an Africa focus, and you say in the opening of your book that outsiders like yourself rarely recover from their initial bedazzlement with Indonesia. What led you to start working in and on Indonesia? Well, a number of things, I think. First of all, I had finished my work on Ghana. I published a book and I was thinking, how can I continue my work without repeating myself endlessly? Mm -hmm. And I was basically looking for a way of making some kind of change in my work. And I was thinking either you change your topic and you remain in your region or you change your region, but stay with your topic. And I wasn't quite sure what to what steps I wanted to make, but I was fortunate enough to have a sabbatical at the time. And I was at the University of California, Berkeley, for a year. And I met a number of people working on Southeast Asia and also a couple of people working very intensely with Indonesia. Initially, we just talked because I hadn't thought about working on Indonesia, but kept circling around issues that I had found really interesting in my African material about what happens in if states, not the institutions that govern, what happens if statutory law doesn't really say much about how people actually access resources. And these questions seem to be reappearing, but in a different form when I talked to my friends who worked on Indonesia. Especially, I was fascinated by people who worked on land occupations, so land that had been occupied by social movements. When they occupy an old plantation and are faced with a lot of governance issues that they can't go to the government to resolve. So how do you distribute land among members of the movement? How do you resolve conflicts? How how do you transact land once you have it? Who decides what to grow? How can you enter into contracts with factories or wholesalers of your produce and so on? So there's a governance issue arising immediately once you occupy this land. And I was really fascinated by the way in which people had tried to approach this. So after some hesitation, I thought, well, why not? I mean, let me go there for a couple of months and just suss out what could be interesting to work on. Yeah. And I think the other reason I chose Indonesia was sheer naivete, because if I had known how complicated it was, I don't think right. I would have done it. Yes. It's a place which has hugely complex history, like yes. many other places, but it also has a huge academic literature that you need to familiarize yourself with. Which right. Is, of course, both good and bad. It's good because you don't have to find out everything yourself, but it's also bad because you're then trying to find your niche. What can you Indeed. say has been said much better a million times before? But I think it only gradually dawned on me how complicated the place is. If I'd known, I probably would have hesitated even more. 
Yes, I understand that. Like I spent about six months in Indonesia myself over the years and bailed out of Indonesia for those those reasons too, that it's hard to find a niche. But I retreated to Thailand, which is by no means a simpler place. So when was it that you went to Indonesia for the first time? 2012. Let me just tie a note on this mm-hmm. moving to Indonesia thing, because yes. I think it's very easy to say that, okay, I, I did a book on Ghana and I now I'm, I did a book on Indonesia, but I, I mean, I haven't written a book on Indonesia as such. I've written a book on a set of phenomena that you can find in Indonesia. If you're going to Indonesia for the first time, or if you need to know about Indonesia, I wouldn't read my book to get an country <laughs> because it's a, a narrow sliver of a issue that I think is fascinating, but it's not a book on Indonesia. It's a book on the way in which people resort to law, even if they don't know what that actually means, to resolve conflicts and assert rights to land. And Indonesia is a context where this is happening in a very exciting way. But I think the issue that I deal with should resonate in many places, many other places also. So that's also why I don't feel that I'm somehow an Africanist turning into a Southeast Asianist. I never thought of myself as an Africanist in the first place, right? Understood. We are the Nordic Asia podcast, so we're obviously interested in the, the Asian angle, but I quite understand that your questions are much larger, broader, comparative questions, which sort of brings me to what I wanted to ask you next. It's very, very hard in a podcast of this kind because yours is a very rich book that's grounded in in deep research and it makes a complex argument. Could you try to reduce for our listeners your core argument to its essence? What really is the problem with land and dispossession that you're trying to grapple with in this book? I can try to do that. There's been a long discussion in political economy, political ecology circles about how law doesn't do what law says it does. So yes. we need to look at other things when, we, when we're looking at people's access to land and so on. We need to take into account all kinds of other aspects of social life that help people access and control land. And I, I think that is perfectly true. What surprises me, though, is then when you talk to people who have land conflicts somehow, is just how much time and effort they spend trying to legalize their possessions, how much time and energy they spend to be seen as legal owners or legal proprietors of land. And it becomes even more confusing when you then realize how superficial people's knowledge of the law then actually is. So my book is basically trying to investigate what do people do to turn land claims into legal property in a situation where they don't really know the law, they don't really have access to legal institutions, and where government is quite authoritarian, even in the present democratic age. The Indonesian government, its local government, and maybe especially the plantation sector are combined to be a formidable adversary to smallholders. You can look at it in steps. You can say that people face a kind of rightlessness in Indonesia Mm -hmm. where First of all, statutory law puts a lot of property rights in the hands of government itself. So people don't really own land in Indonesia. They hold land for a long time, but in a precarious way. It can easily be taken by government for plantations or forest reservations and all kinds of other things. So... 
people have short-term or long-term leases to land, but the whole land legislation is extremely complicated in Indonesia, and very few people can find their way around it. So people somehow have to live with this imagination of what is legal and what is not legal. And it means that people are trying to claim land and make their claim look legal. So what does that mean? How do you make your possession look legal? I mean, it's interesting. I'm a huge fan of James Scott's work, and his work has been very inspiring. And basically, one of his arguments is, is how do people avoid the state? How do people somehow go under the radar of the state? The more I talk to people, the more I realize that almost the opposite is, seems to be the case here. How do people act to be seen by the state? Not to avoid it, but to be recognized and seen as rights subjects, as legitimate holders of land, as legitimate residents in a place that is super complicated if you are poor, if you are not well connected to the political organizations. But people find all kinds of ways to be visible. If you talk to people, they will be very keen to pay their land tax and keep the receipt. The receipt says black and white that this is not proof of ownership. But what that really means in practice is that this is proof of ownership. It's good enough for people to do local transactions among themselves. If you buy a piece of land, this tax receipt follows. Mm -hmm. And it also makes you think that what is being bought and sold is actually not the land, but the land right, even if it is tenuous. So people are buying and selling land right opportunities with all the warts you can imagine. It doesn't mean that you can't be evicted, but at least you, you buy and sell land and you have these small representations of your visibility. So, for example, when there's a census, people are being counted and you get a small sticker that you can put on your window. People are very, very happy to have the yes. sticker from government put on their window because right. it shows that government knows that we are here. Government can't come and say, we never knew you were here. You must be squatting. Because and they have this little round sticker that says that this yes. family lives here and we know. So I've become in increasingly interested in the range of representations mm -hmm. of rights. So you pay your taxes. You make sure you have your sticker in your window. You make mm -hmm. sure that you pay for electricity and water. You make sure you behave as you imagine government would like a citizen to behave. You you have your kids registered for schooling mm -hmm. and, and, and so on. And there are all kinds of ways in which you can demonstrate that you are visible to the state. None of them says property, but right. they all amount to a kind of indirect recognition of your right to be there. And I find that really, really interesting. My book is basically about this. There are eight chapters in all. Six of them right. are cases all dealing with this issue about how do people operate to signal what they have they have within the law, even if they don't know what the law is. Right. I mean, you've already alluded to this, but maybe I can draw you out a bit. One easily understands that poor people, villagers, people in marginalized communities would have struggled to assert their rights to land during an authoritarian regime such as the New Order. But why is it that in the wake of Indonesia's heralded democratization after the fall of Suharto in 1998, they're still struggling so much to assert those rights? When Suharto's regime fell in '98, um, there were this massive democratic transformation. But it was 
there were two things that happened at the same time. You had democratization and you had decentralization. Yes. And decentralization basically meant that instead of Jakarta approving every single little thing that happened in the country, this power was delegated to the districts. And instead of Jakarta collecting taxes and then distributing funds to all districts, districts were compelled to recover their own funds. One way that this happens is that you can allocate land to plantations. There's a very uh, intricate system in Indonesia for allocation of land to plantation companies. Basically, you need to have first a search permit and then you need to have a plantation permit. With a search permit, that's basically a one-off thing, and you pay the district. Once you have settled your plantation, you pay for your plantation permit, and that money goes to the central government. So it means that local governments, they only get a one-off payment every time they issue a search permit to a company. So they don't have any recurrent income from that, which incentivizes them to issue as many search permits as you can imagine. So that's what they do. When they give out search permits to plantation companies, some may do it in a very sober and regular way where they will only search for land where there's not already a settlement. But many, probably most companies, will search for land, whether there are people there or not. They will say that the search permit is practically the plantation permit, and they will have people evicted. And local government, because it depends on this, will act to facilitate eviction. Mm -hmm. They will send police or army or whatever to make sure their financial business search permits can continue. With the 1998 massive reform, you did get democratization. You did get more of a multi-party structure. And in the first maybe year or two, the whole peasant issue was high on the agenda. But you also got decentralization, which moved the obligation and the incentive and the desire to make money from Jakarta to local districts. This has meant the commodification of land to a degree that uh, very few anticipated, I think. Yes. And with this whole palm oil boom that we've seen over the past 20 years, there's been a, a massive drive to have plantations and to convert whatever land use you have into some kind of palm oil producing plant. So in short, then what happened after 98 unleashed a lot of new forces and groups in society, many of which had interests that were highly detrimental to the yeah. poor and marginalized peoples. And even if the peasantry was in many places organized in peasant movements and very well organized, this was only one of a thousand organizations that sprung up. One of the very interesting cases you talk about is the, the Sundanese peasants movement in West Java, where they sought to occupy or reoccupy, however you want to term it, land after 1998. What kind of results did that movement have in their attempts to get the land back to the hands of those who claim to have owned it previously? It's probably one of the movements that has been most successful. The land that they actually did take back or reoccupy, I mean, the terminology is uh, Indeed. Is, is, is toxic, <laughs> right? I mean, yes. whatever way you ask the question will reveal your allegiance. That's, that's right. true. But yep. the land that they managed to control seems to be managed in a very sound way in the sense that land is being 
distributed among the members. They all have small plots. The total area concerned is probably not as big as they would have wanted. So it's a success where it happened, but it didn't happen as a sort of sweeping wave that covered the entire province. Mm. But it, but many plantation companies have experienced occupations of part of or all of their land. In many places, settlement that, mm. okay, stay here, we will not keep evicting you and you will not keep expanding. Mm-hmm. It's not a total success, but the the place where it has happened, I think, has been quite successful. Of course, peasant movements struggle with something which is bigger than themselves also. They struggle with the fact that young people very often see their future outside of agriculture. I had a lot of talks with people who were kind of disappointed in the sense that they had risked everything. It's a dangerous thing to begin to occupy land and and your adversaries are armed and not mild-mannered, right? They've sacrificed everything and what their kids wanted to do when they turned 12, 15, was not really to farm or to, but it was to do something in the city. And I guess this is the case with agriculture throughout the planet. The other thing is, of course, that the movements were carried by egalitarian ethos and an anti-commodification ethos. The movement very often would say, the movement has liberated this land. The movement is now allocating half a hectare to, to you mm-hmm. if you will farm it fine if you will pass it on to your kids fine if you want to sell it it has to go back to the movement first you can understand that this is a powerful theology and also where it comes from but that's not really how people operate if you have sickness in your family or if you need to mobilize some money or you need to send your kids to college you need to sell maybe a slice of your land and you're not going to give it back to the to the movement you're going to sell it to somebody else so even though the movement has tried to have this kind of land registry and semi-sophisticated mm-hmm. way of managing land and land allocation a simpler form of land exchange for money is also emerging i haven't studied that I I think somebody should, but this is undermining the authority of movement because now you've got people who technically are on government land that was technically given to a plantation for a 35-year lease. It is under the control of a social movement because the actual control of the plot is in the hands of the farmer who decided to hand over this control to his neighbor. And it becomes very complicated to see who is the authorizing body of this piece of property. Yes, absolutely. Now, there are many other cases and examples in your book, and we can't cover all of them. I'm particularly sorry that we don't have time to talk about the urban questions so much in Bandung and Medan, but maybe we should talk a little bit about Aceh, which obviously has a very distinctive and specific history as a a post conflict uh, in inverted commas area. How did the quote-unquote resolution of the Aceh conflict in the early 2000s impact on the land issues that you're looking at? Again, this ought, this sounds like it ought to be an opportunity, but I didn't get the impression that that was really the case for many people in Aceh. Aceh has been a conflictual area for a very long time, and especially yes. since the mid-1970s, there was an armed resistance and basically a civil war. And the Free Aceh movement was the unifying resistance Mm. and representative of the Aceh people in Aceh. Yes. 
And when just after the, the horrendous tsunami in 2005, there were enough pause among people to settle and make a kind of peace agreement. And I think people had high expectations that the Free Action Movement, GAM, would continue to defend their interests. But I mm. think what happened when this movement converted into being a political party was that it developed interests in the plantation sector almost immediately. So instead of working for a kind of land reform where smallholders would be given a piece of land and individuals who had been suffering from the whole war in Archie, instead of having that as the sort of highest point of the agenda, it was seen too good an opportunity to latch on to the palm oil boom we missed. Mm. And the Patai Ache that basically won the first elections, they pushed this allocation of land to plantation companies in a very, very aggressive way. Companies were also very good at showing political people in the different parties how they could benefit from this conversion of land. So people who had high hopes for democratic transition with the peace accord I think they felt shortchanged very soon because yes. the Patai Ache basically privileged this petition company development. One of the chapters in the book is basically about this, how this guerrilla movement, as soon as it became a state-bearing party, developed interests in the whole system that they had been fighting. It's quite sad, actually. It's a very sad and salutary chapter, but it really is essential reading, I think, to understand the, the nature of that particular transition. And I shall certainly be assigning that to my students um, in years to come. One of the most interesting aspects of your book to me was the, the way that you researched these various case studies in collaboration with a team of local researchers, with, mm. with Indonesians. Can you talk a bit about how you carried out the, the surveys and the identification of the, the cases and then the, the fieldwork as a sort of a team effort. It developed over time also. Mm -hmm. My initial research was done together with my colleague, uh, Noor Fausi Rachman, whom I yes. met at Berkeley. And when he returned to Indonesia after having completed his PhD thesis, mm -hmm. I went there to visit him. And the first two months I was there, I was traveling with him and some mm -hmm. of his associates and friends who had been in the SPP peasant movement and, and those sort of social movements. So I was given a well-guided tour the world. I did in Aceh and, and in North Sumatra was with local scholar activist NGOs, so the yes. uh, legal aid uh, organization in Aceh and another organization in North Sumatra called Ari. And we had meetings where we discussed what the research issue, what are we interested in, what am I really looking for? And then when I was explaining what I was looking for, they would come up with examples of where these things were happening. And we would then mm. drive around the outskirts of Medan, for example, yes. to find locations where these particular kind of controversies were taking place. And then we did common exploratory fieldwork for a week or so where mm -hmm. we talked to all the significant actors we could find in that area and tried to get as many stories and explanations about who controls land and how. Then we had a, a kind of seminar as a group. And as a result of that, we developed a not a very strict questionnaire, but some key questions we wanted to investigate. And then students who were associated with this NGO did stays in a series of locations mm -hmm. to investigate those questions. So who yes. controlled land? How did it come about? Who do people go to when they want to verify their ownership and so on and so forth? 
The idea was that students could use the material that they gathered for their bachelor's thesis or master's thesis, and I could use it for my purpose as well. So in that sense, the data was shared, and we spent quite some time discussing the significance of the data and comparing mm -hmm. data between these locations. It's a kind of pragmatic way of getting more substantive data on very qualitative way of sort of expanding the field a little bit. Now, it's quite an exemplary way of working, and in itself is very interesting, I think, for other people who are perhaps interested in rather different issues. They could still adapt some elements of this collaborative methodology. I have colleagues that experimented with this kind of fieldwork in, in West Africa, and that's where I did it the first few times. They've written a small research protocol. How can you actually do this? And I think I followed the protocol in spirit. I didn't apply it to the letter because that was impossible for me. There's this interesting group of social anthropologists working in, especially in Niger, and who have developed this kind of collective fieldwork for identification of yes. groups, which is a big collective presence in a place. And then... You identify these these significant groups and issues, and then you leave somebody behind to do a more in-depth mm, study. Now right. this has been identified. This is a kind of, of a methodology that can be adapted to different settings, a variety of ways. It takes a yes. little bit of time, and you need to somehow have aligned your purpose. I think one of the good things for me was that people who with whom I worked had personal interests in, in their findings as well. I guess this book really leaves us with the question, the classic question, what is to be done? We have to, having read your book, feel rather skeptical that it's going to be possible to, quote unquote, solve these problems by means of further legal reforms or remedies, which are the sort of classic responses that uh, policymakers tend to come up with. What can be done? I think the one problem is to ask the question, just like that. Because if you ask the question, what is to be done? Then you kind of assume that you are the one who should do it. You would probably get further in asking, what are people doing? What I mean, people right. are really well aware of this. So what do people actually do? And how can yes. some of the things they do be supported and mm -hmm. strengthened institutionally? And one way of, of operating is to have talks and debates in various districts about what constitutes proof of ownership and what constitutes mm -hmm. proof of property. And this is maybe where decentralization and the enormous size of the country can work in its favor, because in some places it, it might actually work. It might actually be possible to find ways of common acceptance that if you've stayed in the place for so and so long, government can't just evict you if it wants to, right? But I think it's, it's going to be an uphill battle because, because of the money involved. Even if people are moving off the land, uh, land is extremely valuable in mm -hmm. Indonesia. And even if people are moving off the land, we're still talking about millions and millions of people for whom land is the direct source of livelihood. But I think we need to pay attention to what people are actually doing and not trying to think up a, a smart solution that nobody has of thought of the last 70 yep. years. A Dutch colonial government laid down some tracks that have been extremely convenient for any government to ride on because it yes. privileges government in all kinds of ways. I think the only way to challenge this properly is to make sure that people use their democratic rights and have a negotiation locally in their districts about what does it actually mean to be a landholder. And if you paid your land tax, it shouldn't be possible to evict you just for, for no good reason. 
but I think that it's a really tricky question. And I think it's also one of the reasons that people actually move off the land. Effect. Even in the best of times, it's a tough life, right? But if you then also have to fight for your tough life against adversaries that seem to be just getting stronger and more determined, it's going to be an uphill battle. It is. I think that's an important note on which we have to end. But thank you so much, Christian, for joining me today to talk very about welcome. your new book, Nine Tenths of the Law. Thank you very much. I'm Duncan McCargat, Director of the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies at the University of Copenhagen, and I've been talking to Christian Lunt, the author of Nine Tenths of the Law, Enduring Dispossession in Indonesia, which is out from Yale University Press in 2021. It's a book that helps us gain a much deeper understanding of land and property rights and the limitations of legal frameworks for securing those rights. Thank you for joining the Nordic Asia podcast, showcasing Nordic collaboration in studying Asia. You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast.